Okay, good morning. We have the uh, privilege uh, of beginning the fourth book of the Torah, the Shabbos. We move on. Okay, beautiful. So a new parsha, a new book represents a new beginning. It's very exciting. It represents a new theme and a new uh, a new beginning. So parsha's Bamidbar is um, is a fascinating parsha, although it is somewhat uh, it is somewhat data driven, so to say. Parsha of Midbar deals with the census that's taken in the Midbar that uh, Rashi, the opening Rashi in the Torah mentions why does God keep counting the Jewish people that doesn't, uh, God can know the number instantaneously He's God, He's omnipotent Why does God keep counting? Because counting is an expression of affection Counting is an expression of love person who has expensive, valuable baseball cards keep counting their baseball cards person who has a lot of money, their portfolio is doing well they keep going back to look at their portfolio We count and we evaluate um, and we are affectionate towards the things that we love. So Kosh Baruch Hu loves his people, and therefore he counts us as an expression of that affection. So he goes through the Nesim, he goes through the leaders of the tribes, and we go through the tribes themselves, and, uh, and then we get to the formulations of the way that we are encamped in the Midbar, that uh, each, each uh, tribe had a flag we'll talk about, and they were, um, they were placed around the, uh, the Mishkan itself and where the encampment fell, where everybody was placed, and so on, as they traveled. Um, then we have the uh, Torah reminds us about the progeny of Moshe and Aaron. And so on. It's interesting because the Torah says, Ela told us Aaron u Moshe, and then it just lists the progeny of Aaron. doesn't list Moshe's kids. So why does the Torah introduce it by saying these are the children of Aaron and Moshe? So again, Rashi makes a very important comment. Since Moshe taught them Torah, they were as if they were his. It's a very important uh, attitude and philosophy in Judaism that Torah, a person who teaches Torah, so it's as if they are their child. In other words, to be a parent is not the responsibility of a biological parent only. To be a parent is the responsibility of all of Klai Yisrael to transmit the uh, proper Jewish values to the next generation. Okay? And then we have the appointment of the Levium, and the Levium take the place of the firstborn, the Bechor. We're supposed to be the ones who served in the Beis HaMikdash. We're supposed to be the priests, and they were not the priests. That was replaced. Shlomo Zaman Orbach has a fascinating... Um, see? My, this, this Gilgal is back. I'm telling you. Every time I give a class, this fly comes back and drives me crazy. No. It's, you know, it's a punishment for me because I gave a whole shir on Shabbos Cholom at Pesach about how there are no Gilgulim. So this fly is a Gilgul of somebody who's come back to punish me. So no, reincarnation. No. Anyway, so... So, Shlomo Zaman Arbach says, the whole reason for the Tanis, the fast of the firstborn on Erev Pesach, most people assume the reason the firstborn fast on Erev Pesach is to thank Hashem for the fact that he killed only the Egyptian firstborn, not the Jewish firstborn. But Shlomo Zalman Arbach asked like three or four questions to say that that doesn't really make sense. First of all, you should be fasting the night before. The firstborn daughters should also fast. There's a whole list of questions that he asks. And therefore he comes to a different conclusion. He says it has nothing to do with the, uh, the fact that God um, killed the Egyptian firstborn. He says the reason for the firstborn fast is that Erev Pesach was the time that Karban Pesach was brought. So people, there were lines... All over, you know, I, I felt I, when I was at APAC just now, the final banquet, which 11,000 people attend, and two-thirds of the House of Representatives, two-thirds of Senate are there. I mean, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible who's there. It's a huge, glad kosher banquet, three-course meal for 11,000 people. Anyway, so the, because uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke there, the, the, uh, the Secret Service and the security was incredible. So the line literally took me an hour and 40 minutes to get in. The line was insane. It was at the Washington Conference Center, into the Conference Center. So all I could think about on that line was, okay, this, will, this is what it will be like to bring the Karban Pesach. A long line, all the Jews coming. All the Jews coming to Eretz Yisrael. It would be like the Karban Pesach. So the Bechors on Erev Pesach would watch as the Kohanim would bring the sacrifice for every Chabura, for every group of Jews who needed to bring a Karban Pesach. And they would become... They would be reminded of their own shortcoming and of their own failures and the fact that they were replaced by the priests when they were supposed to be the priests. 
they were replaced by Levim, by the tribe of Kohen, by the tribe of Levi, who were the Kohanim, when they should have indeed been the Kohanim themselves. And that's why they fast, as an act of kapara, as atonement for the, for the fact that they didn't realize their potential of who they could have been. It's a very interesting uh, suggestion. What do you mean? In terms of uh, the firstborn, if it's a firstborn girl, is no, not in terms of status for, um, yeah, okay. And then the census is taken of the Levium separately than the rest of the people, which we'll talk about in a moment. And we have the idea of the of the Pidyon Aben, for redeeming the firstborn son, and uh, special uh, halachas that reply, apply to the Kohen. And that ends the Parsha. Okay, so that's an overview of Parsha's. But Midbar launches the fourth book of the Torah. Now you can discuss why the Parsha begins, the Midbar Sinai. Again, the uh, Midrashim talk about the Torah is only given to somebody who makes himself like a Midbar. What does it mean to make yourself like a Midbar? Why should the Torah only be absorbed by an individual who turns himself into a desert? What does it mean to turn oneself into a desert? Those are all interesting discussions. But for our purposes today, I thought we can study Perak Aleph, Pasuk Memches. Perak Aleph, Pasuk Memches. Again, if you look according to the way that the uh, Christian scholars uh, divided the Torah, so this looks like it's in the middle of nothing. It's just starting in the middle of nowhere. But if you understand, um, there's a pay, as I remind you often, that our Mesorah, our tradition of how the Torah is divided has to do with Stumos and Psuchos, has to do with where the sentence ends and so on. So, it actually, let's go back a Pasuk to Mem Zayin. This is at the end of the beginning of the parsha where it talks about the census, the Jewish people are to be counted. And indeed then each, um, there's an instruction to count and the number for each of the tribes. And it says, The Levites, the Levium, um, according to their father's uh, number, according to their tribe, their fathers, were not counted among them. Levium were not counted. That's how it ends. It goes through all the other tribes, tells us who the Nasi, who the prince was, tells us what the census, what their count was, the data, the statistics, and ends by telling us Levium were not counted. New, new chapter. Ach. Ach comes always the word Ach. However, but comes to exclude means unlike what you would have thought. However, the Levim, Losifko, don't count them. And don't lift their heads, don't count their heads. Among the Jewish people. Now, obviously there are a number of questions here. First of all, why? Why shouldn't Levi be counted among the Jewish people? But second of all, didn't the Pasuk just tell us in Mem Zayim? We finished the census by saying Levim didn't count, they weren't included in the sentence. census. And the next Pasuk is, However, don't count the Levim. We, we just said that. Didn't we just say that? So what's going on here? So look at the Rashbam. Kemoshim Afarish Vaholech. Levim were not counted. The next pasuk is given the reason. In other words, in the first pasuk, it's a report. Everyone else was counted, and within this report, just know you're looking at the numbers, the data. Know that the Levim were. There's no column to list the Levim. Why? Because Achas Levim, Achas Matelavi Losif Code. Since God gave an instruction not to count them. And why? Because what's the purpose of this count, says the Rashbam? For the army. You're now in the desert. You're supposed to go into Israel. And you need to create an army. And in order to know how many eligible soldiers you have, you need to know the count. Levim did not serve in the army. They serve in a different army. Sivos Hashem, the army of Hashem is Baruch. Namely, they are the ones who supervise the service in the Beis HaMikdash. So therefore they're counted separately because they have a different service. So all the tribes are counted as one unit and separately Levim are, are counted as a separate unit. And says the Rashbam, the second Pasuk is coming to explain the first. The Levim were not counted. Why? Because Achas Matei Levi of Code, God gave an instruction not to count them. That's his interpretation. Is the size of the shade of Levi comparable to the other or is it much smaller? 
Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I didn't pay attention to the numbers. Look at the Ibn Ezra. Aches Matelevi, Perush Lohas Paktu, Kiashem Tzivakein. Similarly, he says, they weren't counted because God instructed thus. God said, first we said Levi wasn't counted. Now the Pasuk seeks to give a reason why they weren't counted. You know why they weren't counted? Because God said, don't count them. In other words, if you look at the explanation, there's a little ches in the Ibn Ezra, for the Avi Ezer, which is a commentary on the Ibn Ezra to expand what he says. So he says, What bothered the Ibn Ezra was, the Pasuk just said the Levim weren't counted. The very next Pasuk it says, However, don't count the Levim. Commentary on the Ibn Ezra rejects the Ibn Ezra because he says the Torah is not written in chronological order, so it doesn't make sense. The second pasuk wouldn't necessarily explain the first pasuk. Maybe really the second pasuk came before the first pasuk. But in any case, the Rashbam, the Ibn Ezra, both give the same interpretation, which is that the second pasuk is explaining the first. Why weren't they counted? Because God said don't count them. Why would God not want them counted among everybody else? So the Rashbam himself gave a reason because they don't serve in the army. Rashi gives different reasons. Look at Rashi. Rashi quotes the Medrash Tanchuma that God's elite unit deserve to be counted alone. They're distinguished, they're distinct, they're separate. So therefore we don't throw them in with everybody else, all the other lowly soldiers, but rather these are an elite unit, the Levim. So this elite children of Hashem, this Ligayon Shamelech, deserve to be counted separately, deserve to be counted independently. That's that's his first interpretation. His second interpretation, Davar Acher, Tzipa Hakadosh Baruch Hu Shasida Lamod Gzeira Akol and Hanimne Mi Ben Esrim Shana V'Lamala Sheyamusa B'Midbar Amar Al Yu Elu B'Chlal Afi Shehem Shali V'Shelo Tahu Ba'Ego. Then he quotes another Medrash, not the Tanchuma, the Medrash Raba. A second reason Rashi says. Since God saw He has a crystal ball, He is a crystal ball, and He knew that ultimately all peoples, twenty and older, would die in the desert. Why? As a result of their cheta <laughs> ego, because they violated in the golden calf. So therefore, they were going to all not merit to come into Israel. God was going to kill anyone twenty and older. Anyone who was involved in the cheta ego died in the desert. It was their children who entered Israel. So since He was going to enact this gzera on all of that generation, he didn't want to count the Levium among that generation because even though they didn't participate in the Eagle, they then would have been wiped out as well. So in order to preserve their standing, in order for them to continue to live, he had to count them separately. That's the Medrash Rabbah. Anything bother you about that Medrash Rabbah? I thought it was the spies, the sins of the spies that they didn't count. No, no Cheta Eagle. Cheta Yeah. How can they not die? They're going to Actually, if you look, I'm sorry, if you look at the Sifse Chachamim, he quotes the Mizrahi, a super commentary on Rashi. As Yechavet Handy just said. He said, why is Rashi given the reason? Because they didn't participate in the Cheta Egel. The reason that the generation was killed is because of the Meraglam. So the Mizrahi says, because the Levim did participate in the Chet Maraglam. It was the Egel they didn't participate in. They had faith that Moshe was going to return. They didn't have this tangible need to lock Hashem in a box, to feel Hashem as something physical, to worship something tangible. Egel, they were able to uh, show restraint. But when it came to the Maraglam, even the Levim were guilty. So Mizrahi says they were wiped out because of two violations. It was a combination of the Egal and the Maraglam that that generation did not enter Israel. The Rashi didn't give the reason of the Chetam Maraglam because that Taka the Levim did violate. So he only gave the reason of the Egal because that's where the Levim distinguished themselves. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Um, how come you give people that are the same uh, generation a, a different decree when you're talking about a time time limit? In other words, you're all going to die, but you're going to not die. Right. No, anyone 20 and older is going to die, maybe prematurely. You're all going to die young. You're not going to marry to get into Israel. But if you did not participate in the Eagle, then you're going, those who are alive are going to continue to live. No, it's God, God, um, 
ordained nature so that people would die before. That's one of the reasons of, of Tubav, it's such a happy day. They dug the graves and they would lie in the grave waiting to die. Yeah, they would lie in the grave waiting to die until they lived. Anything bother you about this explanation about this Rashi? Other than what you asked. Rav Chaim Shmulevitz. They're not in the army, but that's not, yeah. But what, what bothers you about this explanation that God counted the Levim separately because the entire generation was destined to be wiped out because of their participation in the Egel. The Levim did not participate in the Egel, so we had to count them separately to make sure they wouldn't be wiped out with the generation. What bothers you about that? Why count them too? Okay, maybe why count them at all? What else? So Chaim Shmuel Levitz, the former Shiva of the Mir, asks a very compelling question. He says, God can't count everyone together but still let the Levium live? <laughs> what would have been wrong if God continued to include the Levium in that census? Why did He have to conduct two separate independent census, count them in the one sentence, census, but only kill those who participated in the Ega? Let the Levium live? God is omnipotent. God is infinite. God is perfect. God has to, he could get confused if the lists are together. He has to count them separate to keep the lists separate. Why couldn't God keep them together? God couldn't keep his books straight. He wanted to distinguish the economic problem for the people to know that they were separate. Oh, maybe for the people to know. So I'll tell you what, he says something I think that's remarkable, but it really is so important in the philosophy of, of, uh, in a Torah philosophy. He says that there's a concept in Judaism that a person can be guilty by association we don't believe entirely that an individual is um, evaluated exclusively on their merits the whole notion he says of tefillah b'tzibur the idea of davening with a minion of connecting with a community is that when we are alone when we are alone isolated then we are evaluated exclusively based on our merits and demerits but when we link with a community, we complement one another such that our failures and shortcomings are minimized um, by the merits of the greater whole. And the opposite is also true. If we associate with the wrong community, then our merits are outweighed by the negative behavior and energy of the greater community. So I say it's like, it's similar to the stock market. There's a remarkable thing in the stock market. You could have a company that puts out no, new, no news, no profits or losses, no revenue, no quarterly statements. It has nothing new to report. And yet the market value of the company can go up or down by a billion dollars in a day. Half a billion dollars. The stock could go up a whatever percentage because of the sector it belongs to. If the tech sector or biotech sector or bank sector or real estate sector is up, and that stock will go up. It didn't announce any new profits. It didn't have any merits going for it. The stock goes up X percent, 5%, 7%, 10%, 3% in one day just because of the sector it belongs to. And the inverse is also true. The stock says, oh, we didn't put out any losses. We don't have any bad news. We're not reporting any failed trial. But the stock could go down 5% or 8% or 10% in a day because it belongs to a biotech sector and people are down in the biotech sector. So you see that what sector you belong to what associations you have, what neighbors you were with, very much add to your very value, so to say. So Rechayim Shemalevitz wants to say that, yeah, God's not confused. It's not that God couldn't punish the rest of the Jewish people while allowing the Levium to live had he counted them together. Of course God can maintain his books. Of course he knows the count. The message he seeks to send to us is, he didn't want to count the Levium among the others because, yeah, they would have then been punished with the others. Who you hang out with, you earn their accountability. There is a notion of collective, not collective punishment, that the, that the many are punished for the actions of the few, but the few are indeed identified with the actions of the many. So one has to be very, very careful what community, what friends they identify with. And again, you see here, he talks about the power of minion, of davening with a minion. That when you daven at home, when you daven alone, so you know, you're asking for all these things and you're turning to Hashem for all these things, and he looks at you and says, okay, let me see what you have going for you. But when you dive in with a minion, he looks at that whole room and your shortcomings, they blend in, they're negated by, they're nullified by the greater good, hopefully, of the... Why it's important also to find a good minion. So you have a, very, a greater good in the, in the room. Yes? Why is it that 
we're counting if we're talking about death here. You, you know? Well, here we're talking, yeah. So that's the opening Rashi. Rashi says we're counting because that's an act of affection. God loves his children. So he wants to show he loves his children. He's counting. They're not going to die still for a few years. They have 40 years in the desert that they're wandering. Okay. Okay, look at the... Oh. It's a good question. We have a halacha that we don't count people. You can't count people, even though it seems the, the Navi tells a story where Shmuel and Shmuel, where that was, seems to have been that seems to have been violated. The idea of counting people—that's a whole uh, other area of a uh, of a question. But uh, the simple answer basically is that when you when you count people and you assign them a number, you dehumanize them. You you fail to see their individual worth, and they're now. Um, they now blend into a, a greater number that they don't have a self-worth. So we don't count people as if to assign them a number and dehumanize them. We count some other aspect because we need to arrive at the data without ever devaluing their individuality. Rabbi, is this sometimes people don't count their children? They'll say, remember my mother, let them all live and be well. Yeah, I heard somebody tell me, somebody tell me a word this week. That, you know, it's interesting, like the machz, the shekel, you have to give something to be counted. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that you can't, you're not counted just by being. You're not counted just by existing. To count, you have to do. To count, you have to give. To be counted, you have to make yourself count. You can't expect to be counted without making yourself count. Which I think is a very important idea. You can't just be passive and sit back and say, why aren't I counted? Why aren't I, why don't I count? Why aren't I chashav? You have to make yourself counted. Not through money. Many people think that it's money is the only way to make yourself counted. But there are a lot of ways to influence. There's money is one of them. Work is another one of them. Wisdom is another one of them. There's a lot of ways. Okay. Says the Kliyakar, If you look back at that Pasuk Memtes, it says, Ach! However, the tribe of Levi don't count. What's the difference between Losif Kod and Vyasrosham Losisa? What does Losif Kod mean? Don't count them. And Asrosham Losisa, what does that mean? Right. Look at the even the art scroll struggles. You shall not count the tribe of Levi, and you shall not take a census of them among the children of Israel. What's the difference? That's what the Kliak is saying. If you don't count them, then they're obviously not part of the census. Well, isn't that repetitive? It should have just said, don't count the Jewish people, don't count the Israel. What did we add with the sentence? Good question, right? Again, we're trying to teach a sensitivity to the text. Kliyaka was reading this Pasuk with a much closer lens than we are. Because we read it and say, okay, nice Pasuk. He read it and said it's repetitive. What's the second clause adding? Because it must be adding something. If it added nothing, it wouldn't be there. So he says the following. The census of the tribe of Levi was different than the rest of the Jewish people. The rest of the Jewish people had census takers. The rest of the Jewish people had the machzis shekel. The rest of the Jewish people, there was human initiative in order to arrive at the conclusion of the number. However, when it came to the tribe of Levi, it was divinely given. God simply provided the number, the data of how many Levim there were. So, so he wants to explain, he wants to explain, you shouldn't count them, but they will be counted. So means what it's adding is loss of code, you shouldn't count them. Now the Kliyakar posits a very interesting idea. What's the difference between Pekod and Tisa? You see these words being used interchangeably to count. If you look in the next paragraph, the Kliyakar develops this. 
Sometimes you see it says, like Parshas Naso. Sometimes you see it says to lift. Sometimes it says to count. So which is it? Pekod or Naso? What's the difference between these two languages? So Kliyakr says the difference is, Naso, Sisa means in contrast to the others. To count means to lift these so that they are elevated, they are distinguished, they are different from the others. It is to create contrast, to elevate them. The code is to give a number. The code is to give a count. The code is purely data. But Naso, Sisa means to lift. So he says, that's how you understand the Pasuk now. Lo Sisa besoch b'nei Yisrael. Levi will not be counted in order to distinguish them from everyone else. You don't need to count them to distinguish them because they are automatically distinguished. The Jewish people need to be counted to distinguish them from the rest of the nations of the world. But Levi doesn't need that. They already have gained distinction. What is their distinction? That God appointed them in charge of His house, in charge of the Beis HaMikdash. Since they have intrinsic distinction, by God's having dedicated them for this position, they don't need to be counted, they don't need to see sub, soch b'nei Israel. They don't need to be elevated. When it comes to the Bechor, the firstborn, it is both languages. It has the language of Pekod and Sisa, because since they lost their distinction when they violated the Egel, you need both words in order to give them that distinction back. Okay? That's the Kliyakim. Uh-huh. So when, when they really do have it, it never says Sisa, right? Right, for that reason. Okay, beautiful. Next Pasuk. We point the Levim over the Mishkan, over all the Kalim, the utensils, they're in charge, they supervise, they conduct the service, over everything that belongs to it. They carry the Mishkan, they carry the Kalim, they minister to it, and they encamp, their encampment is surrounding, is encircling the Mishkan. In other words, this Pasuk is basically saying, Leviim have a very intimate, intense connection with the Mishkan. For everyone else, the relationship with the Mishkan is significant. I don't want to say it's casual, but it's less intense. The Leviim, they are synonymous with the Mishkan. They supervise it, they attend to it, they clean it, they carry it, and they encamp around it. They are, I would say, they are the guardians of the Mishkan. Rabbi, would that be the same for the Beit HaMikdash and Binyat Zashim? They also be considered in that particular well, the Kohanim. I mean, here we're using the tribe of Levi to include the Kohanim. No, but it's both. It's both. The tribe of Levi includes the Kohanim. So it means here not the Levi as we think of a Levi, but it means Levi including the tribe of uh, including the Kohanim who are part of the tribe of Levi. Now, thank you. That was an important clarification. When the tabernacle travels, it's the Levim who disassemble it. And when the tabernacle arrives at the encampment, it's the Levim who assemble it. And any Zar, any non-Levi, or Kohen, anyone not from the tribe of Levi, who, who approaches the Mishkan inappropriately, who seeks to have that, that grow, so you must, they're going to die. How do they die, says Rashi? Bidei Shemayim. They're not killed, they die Bidei Shemayim. Hashem, the heavenly court. The heavenly court. Okay, so again, this very special relationship with the, between the Levim and the Mishkan. It says the Ibn Ezra, actually, I'm sorry, the next Pasuk first. The Jewish people encamp each according to their flag and each in their appropriate place. 
There were three tribes in each side of the Mishkan, the north, south, east, and west. The Levim were around the Mishkan. Okay, that's where their encampment was. It surrounded the Mishkan. The Jewish people did everything according to the way Hashem said, so they did. That also seems repetitive, right? Isn't that redundant? If Vayasu, so obviously Kenasu. And if Kenasu, I know Vayasu. That too seems, seems redundant. Look at the Ibn Ezra. The no one is allowed to touch the Aram. The Leviim are the ones who carry the Aram. And if a non Levi, not from the tribe of Levi, tries to touch, have contact with the Aram, they die. That's the that's the story in Shmuel Bays with Uza. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It's a good question. Yeah, in the tribe of Levi. I assume that they too are included in this. Yeah. He reached out and tried to hold up the Correct. And he died as a result. The story of Uza Shmuel Beis Perik Vav. So Ibn Ezra is saying, why is it that Leviim Yachanu Saviv? He says, read the pasuk. You understand the Torah is giving the reason. Since if a non-Levi has contact with the Aaron, they'll die. So we put the Leviim as a buffer. Their encampment surrounds the Mishkan, the Aaron, as a buffer to protect the other tribes to make sure no one who's in a, for whom it's inappropriate to touch the Mishkan or the Aaron will do so. So Ibn Ezra explains the succession of the Pesukim that the reason Leviim encamp where they do is to create a buffer zone around the Mishkan and around the Aron in order to protect it. In order to protect it. Okay. Next parak. Parak base. This is also a Pesukha. Here you have a break. Okay. Hashem Hashem spoke to Moshe and Aaron saying, Ish al diglo be'osos leves avosam yachanu b'nei Yisrael mi neged so, um, Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, the children of Israel shall encamp, each according to their banner, each according to their symbol, their sign, the insignia of their father's household, everyone at a distance from the, uh, from the Mishkan. Mineged. Mineged can often mean opposite. But here Rashi says, Meirachok mil, the, uh, a distance of a meal from the um, from the Mishkan. From the Mishkan. And then the Pesukim now go on and list the encampments where they were, their flag, their insignia, their symbol, their sign, and where they were north, south, east, and west of the, of the, uh, of the Mishkan. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky in his Emes Yaakov is a beautiful essay where he talks about, you know, we always talk about it's the motto of our shul, the balance of Diversity and unity. Valuing diversity, celebrating unity. So here you ran the risk. One could look at these psukim and say, is that good for the Jewish people? Everyone has their own sign, everyone has their own flag, everyone has to stay in their encampment. It's divisive, isn't it? It's like a, it's like a collective color war in the Jewish people that's perpetual. Everyone's got their own banner. Everyone's got their own symbol. Everyone is under a different unit. Is that good? It's going to end up being divisive. So Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky says, you know why it wasn't divisive? Yes, that risk ran. You know what is the secret to keep maintaining unity among that diversity? Says Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, because what was at the center of the encampment? They were all spokes of a wheel, but what was the core? What was the root? The Mishkan. So as long as everyone is focused on the same goal you could maintain unity among diversity. It's when people have different interests and when people have different agendas and it's when people have different goals and when people have selfish interests, that's when diversity is divisive. But in order to maintain unity, you have to have the shared goal. 
So that's why the Israeli army works. Because you have different units in the army, any army. You have different units in the army. So how do they cooperate? How do they conduct a battle, a war? How are they productive? And the answer is because they have a shared goal. They have a shared mission that drives them, that supersedes, that transcends whatever diversity they may have. So Yaakov Kamenetsky says, that's why the encampment, the three, 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 and three, it wasn't there were 12 tribes and then the Aron. Nor was it there was the Aron and there were 12 tribes. It was specifically designed the encampment in a way that there was everyone around the, Ar- the Mishkan, the Mishkan was at the center. To make that statement, diversity is not only okay, diversity is wonderful. We have different banners, we have different flags, we have different symbols. But we're all directed and we all nullify our interests to that of Hashem. It's the Mishkan which unites us. Yes? You could say this in a marriage. The divorce rate is so high. Why? Because that's not the focus. When Hashem and your home becomes a Mishkan, and you both have common values and a common mission, you can have the diversity, but everyone's giving to that cause. Same with the children, same with the community. Same okay, with beautiful. Yeah, you can apply the... To anything, to a business with different units, to anything with different units, that you need to share a mission in order to meet success. Yes, Ruth. That's a beautiful divide that I read from Benny Lau in Israel. Yeah. He said there's an expression, Chosef Shivto Sonebno. If you spare it, they you hate your son. But the word Shevet is also mean a tribe. And if you deprive your child from their Shevet, who they are and their roots, and you know, whether it's with Levi's or Moroccan or whatever, if you deny that your child, if it's Shevet, his origin, and Shoshi, then you, you really hate them. You're doing a... Uh, a disservice. That's a beautiful thought. Yeah, yeah. So, I just always... How separated were they? Was it like really, they couldn't intermarry? Yes, they couldn't they intermarry. Couldn't hang out together? Or they just slept mm-hmm. in that area? They couldn't intermarry. So they could, they could. Till later, right. Then they had permission, and then they banned them again when Menasha, when the tribe of Menasha carried the Pilegesh Begiva. At this time, it was, pre- it was pretty, se- you were separate units. They, people were, were separate and distinguished. Look at, look at Rashi. Look at Rashi. V'yishal digla Rashi pasak nun beis k'mosha adigal m'sdurim b'sefer zeh shlosh shvatim l'chol degel. Like the flags are organized in this, uh, in this, um, in Sefer Bamidbar, there were three tribes to each banner. Bosos, Pasuk Beis, Kol Degel Yelo Os, Mapa Tzvua Tzluya Bo, Tzvau Shozeh Lo Ketzvau Shozeh Tzeva Kol Echad Kigavan Avnoa Kavua Bechoshen Umitoch Kach Kol Echad Yaker Es Diglo. No two banners, no two flags looked alike. A flag or a banner are significant. They give, they give identification. They give identity. Okay. Um, look at the Kliyakar on this Pesukim. Kliyakar Pasuk Beis. Matzinu Bekama Midrashim we see a number of midrashim that really laud, that really praise uh, this concept of having separate flags. And they talk about this pasuk with the name of Hashem Nidgol. At Har Sinai, the Jewish people saw the angels. Does this mean literally? Does this mean metaphorically? Whatever. They saw the angels were divided by flags, and they were jealous. So the Kleyakar is quoting all these Midrashim. What were the Jewish people so jealous of? Among the angels, among the other nations of the world. What is so appealing? What is so appealing about having a flag, about having a banner, about having a sign? 
What the Jewish people really were desperate for in terms of this identity is to impress upon the non-Jews of the world that we are a righteous, religious, God's chosen and choosing people. What they wanted a flag for was to show that even though we have diversity, you know what our strength is? It's our unity. It's our togetherness. It's when we are one. This alignment, this encampment in the desert, very much parallels, as Gemara Tainus tells us, that in the world to come, Kashbarch, who ultimately one day, is going to make a circle for the righteous in Gan Eden, and he will sit in the middle of them. What is the symbolism that the righteous all sit in the circle and God sits in the center? What's the symbolism of that? Is that the righteous, what unites the righteous, the common denominator or theme of the righteous, is that they conduct all of their affairs and behaviors and actions towards the service of God. God is the center of their circle. God is the center of their circle. So the significance of saying that they were jealous, that they desired this, is not for some self-interest, it's not for some self-aggrandizement or identification which would... <coughs> be self-serving. They wanted to impress on the other nations of the world that with our diversity and that with our differences and that with our nuances we are all united to a common cause. Look, we all have separate flags but look what's at the center of our circle. I would say and I hope I don't regret saying this now because it would make for a good rush of the Shabbos but I would say to me that was the most impressive, outstanding, incredible thing of APAC. APAC is close to 11,000 people Delegates from every one of the 50 United States of America and other places around the world. There's incredible diversity there. But they're all united for one common cause, and that's caring about Israel, loving Israel. By the way, I'll tell you, it's not only Jews. APAC is a pro-Israel event, not a Jewish event. So there was a large delegation of, of black people, particularly pastors and their congregants, of evangelical Christians, and as the black pastor said, standing shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm. Anyway, so they were there. there there's, you could have different flags and be under different banners. But the message that APAC sends to the Congress, the message that APAC sends to Israel's enemies, the message that APAC sends to this administration, is that with all of our differences... Here's where we are united and look at our strength. What a message it sent the world. BB's speech to Congress. 26 to 27 standing ovations, more than the State of the Union got. Here you have Republicans and Democrats killing each other, killing each other over the budget, the debt ceiling, Medicare, killing each other over everything. And there they were all collectively standing, applauding. When it came to Israel, united. How powerful is that? How powerful is it for the world to see that you have two groups who can't agree on anything? Anything! Except Israel. Except Israel. When something unites you, that shows a strength, a potency, a power. It's remarkable. It's absolutely incredible. So that's what the Kliakar is developing. That, and there was a heckler. There was a heckler when Bibli spoke at APAC also. Yeah, who do you think the heckler was, by the way? Of course it was a liberal Jew. Yeah, it was a group of Jews. Yeah. Well, like, um, you know, it's great. You know what they did at Congress? The same thing we did at APAC. When the hecklers started heckling, everyone started getting up and cheering and applauding to drown them out. Oh. Even that was intuitively. No, nobody, nobody made an announcement. If someone heckles, do that. Intuitively, it got the loudest cheers. It was like the biggest. Uh, it was amazing. It was incredible. I like what Bibi said back when he in Congress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One person, yeah. one person got it.
Yeah. Yeah. So the Kliyakar says, that's why they wanted separate flags, because they wanted to impress upon people. You see, to just be in encampment with no flags and the Mishkan in front of you, okay, so blah, you're what you are. But to say that we all have separate flags, we're not afraid, and this is the beauty of the Jewish people, we're not afraid to have our diversity. We don't shy away from diversity. We don't raise only one banner or one flag. Shivim panam la Torah. There are 70 faces to Torah. There are 12 tribes and they're each different and different leadership. And they are where they are by designation. Yehuda is the first tribe to the front. Why is Yehuda the front tribe? Because Nachshon ben Aminadav. It makes sense. Rav Avigdor Nevenzal writes in a Sefer that these tribes earned their spot. They weren't arbitrarily or randomly designated by God. They earned their spot. Yehuda had Nachshon ben Aminadav. That leadership of Nachshon ben Aminadav earned his tribe to be the front tribe when they would journey. Who was the last tribe in the back? Done. You know why? Because when Amalek attacked from the rear, it was Dun who was back there. Ayef v'yageya, they were tired, they were exhausted, they were wavering in their faith. They were the most vulnerable. They didn't secure the rear. So therefore God says to them, when we journey, when we travel now, you're going to be in the back. These tribes were not randomly placed. But one earns their place. One is placed in the, where, where they earn. In the message they send. So the Kliyakar says they wanted their own flags to say that we are a people of diversity, we value diversity, but watch out for us because the Mishkan's at our center. Israel's at our center. And while we have tremendous diversity, there's one thing that unites us. And when we allow that diversity to create divisiveness, we are the most vulnerable and the most fragile that we can ever be. We're the most vulnerable and fragile that we can ever be. Maybe I'll speak about this on Shabbos anyway. So please, nobody here remember that I said anything. Forget whatever I said. We'd love to hear it again. Really, I We'll be like a desert. The Kliakar. Yeah, there you go. Be like a desert. Forget it by tomorrow. The Kliakar in Pasuk Gimel. Kliakar says, Tam l'seder hadgalam azeh ha'ofen kvar dibru ba'arishonim. Ish l'fi sikhlo. The Kliakar says, the reason they were um, organized according to these encampments has to do with four different qualities. There are four qualities which capture the idea of perfection within the human spirit. And they are acquiring wisdom and then comes developing character and then comes comes gvura is strength, valor, for lack of a better word. And then, Kenyan ha'usher, then is wealth. Kikach sidram ha'rambam. Ein ha'shchina shorakim ha'lachacham asher gibor va'anav. That's how the Rambam organizes it. When God talks about who can be a navi, who is a candidate for God's presence to dwell, to be a navi, they have to be a chacham, they have to be wise, they have to be wealthy, they have to be a gibor, they have to be strong, and they have to be modest, and anav. Hanava roshel cholamidos. Anivas, Modesty is the head, he says, of all character. So modesty is the symbol of character development because modesty is the core of all character development. Um, so that's why the, the, the four, the twelve tribes were divided into four groups, north, south, east, and west. And those are symbolic and divided among these four attributes of chachma, of wisdom at the forefront, then midos, character, and then strength or valor, and then wealth. Yes? You don't mean literally, or you didn't when you talked about them seeing the angels with their flags. What, what does that mean? You know, far be it from me to say it means metaphorically. Maybe it does mean literally. You know, that's always a running debate in the Torah between the you know, different mafarshim. It says here in the commentary I was just reading. Through, yeah. That actually, you know, there's a reflection of what's happening in Shemayim here. And the angels are in that formation with banners. Right, but what that means exactly? What does it mean for... Our angels are not physical figures. So what does it mean for angels to be in a formation? What does it mean for angels to have banners? There are different angels... It's got to be worked out. This must be some symbolism that's meaningful there. 
So the Kliyakar continues. All tribes have the four qualities to different degrees. So the ones who excel in each of the four qualities, right? Look what he says. That's how he continues. Yehuda Yisachar is vulan rishon Yisau. Kimehem tete Torah. Okay, Nemar kefal kadma kedma mizracha. Lahoros kimehem tete or haTorah. Yisachar and Zvulun, we know have this partnership of Torah, as well as Yehuda. His leadership is, is David, is Malchus. So they represent Torah. From them, Torah will emanate. flourish, will emanate, will emanate, will flourish. So that's why it says, from them, Tete or HaTorah. Ki b'Yehuda ne'mar lo yasur shevet mi'Yehuda u'mechokek mi'bein raglav. E'lo rashi galios v'nesia Eretz Yisrael. Yehuda will be the leadership of Torah. And, e'en mechokek el HaTorah sh'nebar Moshe, ki Hashem chalkas mechokek safun. And he goes on all of these psukim. He's going to prove with each of these tribes, like in the next paragraph. Degel menachene reuven shimon gad is teimana. Shenikar darom Hashem shudar rom shashem shudar berumo kakol anichne betevel asof hakashboruch magbiyovachna rosh lechol midos atobos. These three tribes, reuven shimon and gad, are in the south because it says the sun lives in the south, whatever that means, and that's a notion of humility. South is low, humility. And then he uses all the psukim to prove that these three tribes symbolize the quality, synonymous with the quality, with midos, with the quality of anivas, with humility. And the Kliyaka then goes on and says, And then he goes on to the next, and he says, Ephraim and Asher bin Yaman symbolize gvura, strength. And he proves how. And then finally, Machna Dan Asher Naftali Sfona, and again he proves he proves with that. So he goes through each of the tribes' location and proves that you could divide them among these four qualities: three to each quality. Chachma is wisdom, and then Midos is character, and then Gvura strength or valor, and then finally Ashiras is 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 wealth. And that's how they are organized. Yeah, that's a good. It's a good question. Zavia would support Issachar through their wealth. They were able to do Torah study, and, and Judah has them on each side. Yeah, but that's but that's the first group. This is Dan, Asher, and Naftali are the ones who are about wealth. It's the idea not of admiring the wealthy, but it's the idea of the symbolism of of um, of using wealth to advance Hashem's cause. It's wealth as a source of influence. So wealth is not inherently intrinsically bad. Wealth is an incredible tool, right? I mean, you could use wealth to to influence a lot of policy. No, that's that's true. Unlike the other three. But what one does... No, but Peggy, what one does with it reveals a lot about one's character. So wealth is not a character trait, but what one, one does with their wealth reveals a lot about their character. Interestingly, that last group, by the way, done. You know what they did, that last group in the back? They... they it would, the Rashi quotes the Medrash. They were involved in Hashavah Saveda. Because when they would encamp, they were the final tribe. Everyone in front of them would drop a pen and drop the keys and would drop the this and would drop the that. And every time they would encamp, they would pick up all of the all of the things, and they would and they would return them. And they would return. They would fulfill the mitzvah of Hashavas Aveda. And there's significance to that as well. Okay, we're going to stop here. Very nice. Sure.